The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2021. We made it. I mean, sort of. I hope you guys all had a nice holiday and maybe even got to see some friends and family, IRL or virtually. Ahead of New Year's, I put up this meme from Dorinda from the Housewives of New York, double fisting, and it said, We all think things are going to look so different in 2021. I love that for us. I do too. And here I am a few days into the new year and you know what? Mostly things look exactly the same. And if you're in LA, I dare say they look worse. But damn it, if I don't have a renewed sense of spirit. Check back with me in a, a week or so and let's see how long it actually lasts. New Year's Eve was of course different, but my family still got all dressed up. We made it nice. Ian and I drank way too much champagne and then called all of our friends on FaceTime, like that weird app phone roulette a while back that seemed like a good idea at the time until, of course, some weirdo would be naked. No one was naked that we called, unfortunately, but we did get to talk to Timothy Chalamet, who was in fact fully clothed at a friend's house, so that sort of made the whole thing worth it. I took my hangover straight into the freezing ocean the next day in a ceremonial New Year's Day cold plunge, and it felt amazing. Other little boosts over break came from the riveting case of mistaken identity concerning Ilaria Baldwin, nay Hillary Thomas. I'm all for reinvention, and I sometimes also forget how to say cucumber, so I was totally consumed. I'm also very into the developing romance between Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles, proving that there is nothing sexier to young pop stars than older mothers of two, right? Guys, if you haven't already visited, I've also become a shopkeep in addition to a homeschool teacher. So please do visit my Amazon shop. I have linked it on my bio. I have curated many a coppable and shoppable item for your pleasure. I have things for the home, beauty, wellness, and even some great picks for my aspiring green thumbs out there. So please do stop by. It's literally open 24-7 and totally safe to shop mask-free. So do your worst. Okay, so moving on to our episode, I'm excited for you to meet the woman who is referred to as Kim Kardashian's mentor in her own pursuit of becoming a lawyer. This guest was so inspiring on so many levels as she shared her story of being a young single mom who hadn't even finished high school when she decided to take action after watching her own life ripped apart when her husband was sentenced to 15 years in prison for a nonviolent crime. Instead of sitting on the sidelines, she took action went back to school with her young daughter in tow, became a lawyer, and is fighting to change legislation and policy around the criminal justice system as a whole, making me wonder what I'm actually doing with my time. I hope you enjoy her interview as much as I did and get involved with her cause should you feel so inclined. All right, on to the episode. Today's guest is a human rights attorney and chief advocacy officer at Reform Alliance. She's the co-founder of Cut 50, a national bipartisan effort aimed at reducing America's incarceration rate 
She's also served as the youngest mayor of the city of Mill Valley. Please welcome Jessica Jackson. Thank you so much for your interest and for having me on. Of course. How have you been? How have you been handling all the craziness that is 2020? Yeah, I mean, it's been a lot because, uh, you know, we work primarily on state legislation and we had all these elections happening this year. You had all these state legislatures that were open and then shut and would have corona outbreaks and you couldn't actually go up there and, you know, really had to change our entire model of working. And on top of that, you know, we represent a population that lives inside the prisons that have really been hit hard by the pandemic. So it's really impacted our work, the way we work, and of course, you know, everybody's mind frame around us. Yeah, 100%. It has to be like such a wild card situation in terms of the safety of people, like you said, who are in prison, because I don't know in terms of the ins and outs, but there was a lot of people that were released due to COVID, correct? Yeah, so we've seen about 70,000 releases that were based on COVID. So at one point in the pandemic, our arrest rate was also extremely low. I think it was down by about 17%. And you saw the lowest population in our jails that you had seen, you know, in decades because of it. People were staying in their homes, they weren't arresting as many people, and they were letting people out uh, just because people inside really can't engage in social distancing. They don't have the same access to hygiene items. In fact, at one point, we realized, you know, we couldn't get uh, hand sanitizer donated to jails because in a lot of jails, it was contraband because of the high alcohol content. So I think, oh my you know, God. yeah, we have seen a lot of releases, but there's still a lot of work that needs, needs to be done. Yeah. So, you know, beginning at the beginning, as far as the podcast, one thing that we like to explore is that we alone get to design the kinds of life that we want to lead. And I wonder, you know, if you could share a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and what kind of life you envisioned for yourself. Yeah. So I've got a pretty unusual story. I'll say that there's been a lot of evolution throughout my life in terms of where I was going and, and what I wanted to do. I was kind of a wilder teenager. I had experienced quite a few things as a child and ended up as a teen, uh, being very rebellious. My mom says she she knew I'd make a great lawyer. Uh, at the time, I really didn't see myself on that path. I, I hated school. I lived out in the Bay Area in California and ended up actually dropping out of high school. Uh, my parents sent me to boarding school. I was there for a couple of years and, and dropped out. At the time, then I, I moved down to Atlanta, was working on the Clean Air, Clean Water campaign, bartending at night, really didn't see myself going back to school at any point. And then when I was 22, shortly after I'd gotten married and had my first daughter, I found myself standing in a courtroom in, in Georgia, watching as my husband got sentenced to 15 serve six for crime stemming from his drug addiction. And, you know, it was extremely terrifying. I didn't have a job. I just had a GED. I had a two-month-old baby. Our house, you know, very quickly fell behind. I really had to figure out what was going to what was going to come next. And I think because of the experience I'd gone through and watching somebody who I knew was such a good person but just needed a little help end up stuck in the system and and seeing the, you know, devastating impact it was having on our family really motivated me and inspired me to want to become a lawyer, which is exactly what I did over the next, you know, 7 years. Okay. So what, you know, just for, for any of us 
myself included, that doesn't know what that means. 15 serve six means 15 years sentence, actually serving six years in prison. Yeah. And he ended up serving three and a half years in, in prison. This is essentially a nonviolent crime is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Did you have an understanding of the legalities behind why he was sentenced to such a long term for something that maybe was not deemed either violent or as serious as one would think for a 15 year sentence? No. And I think not only not understanding the law at the time, but also having been through the process we went through, the first deal that they offered him was 10 serve one suspended by six months boot camp. So he just would have gone and done six months of boot camp and then been home. Our attorney said, you know, this is your first offense. We don't need you to end up getting any time inside. I bet I can get it down to probation. And the second, what is boot camp? Sorry to cut you off. What is boot camp? Yeah. So boot camp in Georgia was basically just, you would go, you would work for the state. I think there was a physical component to it, but you would be gone out of the house for six months. Okay. So, you know, at the time when you're sitting there and you've got a loved one who is going to be incarcerated, you know, you're not thinking about it in terms of days, months, years, you know, now when I look back, I think six months, why, why wouldn't we have taken that? But at the time I was pregnant with my daughter when they made the offer and, you know, I didn't want him to miss the birth of our daughter. I didn't want him to miss her, you know, crawling or sitting up or any of that. And we had a lawyer who was saying, I can make this probation and make sure he's there for all of that and never spends a day in prison. And sadly, that's not what actually happened. How long after your husband went to jail did you then start to pursue becoming a lawyer? So I went out to my mom's house in Marin County, California. We did a short sale on the house in Atlanta. I went out to my mom's with the baby. She was about four months then. And I remember, you know, my mom kind of kind of looking at me and saying, you know, what's next? What are you going to do? And I'd had a couple of months to kind of come to terms with what had happened. And I, I really hadn't thought that much about next steps. But I remember just kind of blurting out, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to become a public defender. And I remember my mom, you know, she knew how much I hated school back in high school, right? So she's like, well, that means that you have to go to college and then you have to take your LSAT and you have to go to law school and you have to take the bar exam. You know, this is seven more years of school in front of you. Are you really up for that? And I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And so the next day she went to work and I remember calling over my husband's parents lived down in Tampa at the time and had said that my daughter and I could come come live with them. So I called down to University of South Florida and I applied and they let me start three months later in, in January 2005. You know, I spent the first year, you know, really figuring out how to balance having a small child and school. And then the second year, I actually got my own apartment. So I had to start working as well on top of that. But I was very blessed because as soon as my daughter went to sleep, I would start studying and I was able to make it into the honors college uh, my second year. And from there, it, it really took off. Do you think that if you look back to, I know you said you hated school as a student in high school, do you think it was with the renewed sense of purpose 
that suddenly you attacked college with so much intensity in a way that maybe you hadn't seen the point in high school? Or what do you think was the shift for you? Yeah, I think 100%. School was no longer like an activity I had to do because people told me I had to. Suddenly it was like, this is the tool you need in your belt to get to where you want to be. And I knew I wanted to be, you know, in a courtroom or in a position as a lawyer, able to help families that had been ripped apart like mine or prevent them from being ripped apart like mine was. So every day that I was there, it was like, this is why I'm doing it. And I actually, it turns out, really loved school once I was there with a purpose. And I think that that's one of the whole purposes of engaging in these conversations with people also is that I sometimes say, even to my kids, it's like, I wish that the way that the system worked was reversed. Like at this stage of my life, I'm so much more curious about a lot of things. I would love to learn more. In a way, you go through the educational system which obviously serves its purpose, but so young that you don't really have appreciation for anything that you're learning. And it feels taxing and just like an obligatory thing that a lot of people don't want to do. And then suddenly then you're working. And, you know, sometimes for some people, I think adulthood is the point at which they stop learning in a very sad way. But what I really applaud is you knew that the journey for you going to school and becoming an attorney would be longer than when your husband was projected to get out, right? Because even with a six-year sentence, you were looking at seven years of school. So did you see sort of holistically this was something that you wanted to be involved in beyond just your husband's case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when he first got in, I thought, God, this is a mistake, right? Like I had the same stereotypes of people in prison that I think a lot of people have. And I, I just... I was terrified. I was worried, you know, he was going to be hurt in in prison. I thought he wasn't like the other people in prison. And then, you know, when I started to visit him there and he would tell me about people he was meeting in there or he would write me letters, it was really expensive to talk on the phone. It was $21 for a 15-minute phone call, which, you know, we really couldn't afford. So we would write a lot of letters and he would tell me about people he was meeting in there or I would see them at, at the visits with their families. And it turned out there was a lot of people in there who were who were a lot like him. They were good people who had made a bad decision. And because of that bad decision, now them and their families, you know, were going through hell and they weren't getting the supports they needed to succeed. And I think once I realized that this was not a mistake, this was not just a, a mix up where he ended up in there, but that a lot of people, you know, 2.2 million people we're going through this, you know, it, it made me even more passionate about fixing some of the bigger issues. And I think that's another piece of it. One of the most frustrating things for me was I knew that all of this stemmed from the fact that he hadn't gotten the help he needed for a drug addiction. And I think that's very true. A lot of people who are inside have substance abuse issues that drive whatever crime they've committed or they have mental health issues that are the underlying reason why they committed that crime or they're coming from, you know, poverty and and don't have options. And I think if we were to actually invest in fixing these systemic issues, instead of just locking people up when they commit a crime, we would both have a safer communities, but also we would actually get people back on their feet and they would have a real meaningful opportunity to succeed when they came home or, you know, even if they stayed home and did diversion programs, they would actually get back on their feet because the current system we have, you know, 68% of 
in the time people recidivate. And it seems so backwards to me that we're spending billions and billions of dollars on a system that's actually having worse outcomes rather than investing in, in people succeeding. I want to talk to you about prison reform. And I was thinking of something that I have friends who have a podcast called The Dissenters. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's great. And they had Jamila Jamil on it. And she said something which really resonated with me, which is ignorance is okay so long as you're working to educate yourself, you know, and I don't know everything or much about this. So I'm so happy for you to educate me. Would you have in that case had preferred that there had been some sort of treatment program for your husband or what would you have wanted? What would have been a better way to handle his situation? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is pilot programs popping up all over the country that are very promising. We've seen drug courts where somebody who commits a crime because of an addiction or commits a drug crime because of an addiction, they get a chance to come in and and talk to the judge about it and accept responsibility for that crime as they should. And then they get access to the resources they need to get the treatment they need to succeed. So they get access to, you know, substance abuse counseling. We've also seen mental health courts pop up. We've seen veterans courts pop up. As as I said before, you know, on average, 68% of the time people end up recidivating, sometimes not even for committing a new crime. Sometimes it's just a technical violation of probation, like missing a meeting with a probation officer or being late to a meeting. And recidivating means going back into the system? Going back to prison, yeah. So I'm practically in law school right right now myself. <laughs> <laughs> But with the veterans courts, you know, they come in and they take responsibility for the crime that they've committed, but then something really cool happens. They get linked up to the services they need, the mental health counseling, the substance abuse, the jobs training programs, jobs placement programs, you know, educational counseling, all of those kind of services. And now because these programs exist, we're seeing that these programs have an 82% success rate. So instead of 68% of the time, a person who comes home from prison going back to prison, 82% of the time in the veterans court, the person doesn't have to go to prison, gets the support they need, and moves on to have a successful life without any new arrests. So it's really mind-blowing to think about how we continue to waste money on incarceration when these models are out there that show that there are much better alternatives to keep our communities safe. What programs are offered within prison? Because obviously, if your husband had a drug problem and went in, are there people that are focused on helping with detoxing at that point? Or are there programs for substance abuse? Or or are they kind of left on their own? Some places do have programs. Luckily, he didn't have to go through any sort of detox. But I went to Louisville Metro Jail. And they actually had a program called the Enough is Enough, which was an interesting program because they had seen so many opioid deaths of people who came in and went through withdrawals and unfortunately, you know, got very, very sick or died from it. You know, they didn't have the staff to actually handle all of those uh, withdrawal cases. So the detox cases. So they created this program where a woman in the ward who had already been through detox would then be paired with a woman who was coming in who was going through detox. And essentially they learned to kind of be caretakers for them. And and all together they're taking 
sobriety classes, they're getting treatment, they're getting counseling, and they're doing parenting classes because about 80% of the women inside of our prisons and jails are actually moms. So they're getting, you know, sort of wraparound services inside the jail. We've seen some prisons, like the federal system has RDAP, where you, a residential drug alcohol program, where you take uh, this course for your drug abuse issues, and, and then you end up actually getting time off of your sentence if you successfully complete it. And, and from what I hear, it's actually very, very hard program. This isn't, you know, simply watch a movie and, and check a box. It's very hard program with very intensive counseling that really gets to the root of why you had a, a drug problem to begin with. So I think some places you see it, other places you don't. You know, you've got somewhere like Parchman Prison down in Mississippi. There isn't programming. They just literally leave people, you know, in the prison like it was a warehouse and and don't invest anything in them. So I think we really have to work to get programming inside of all the facilities and to build up as many diversion programs as you can so people get diverted from going into prisons and jails, don't get a criminal record, and actually you know, solve the underlying reasons why they committed a crime. For your personal journey, so you ended up, like you said, you have a toddler, you move into an apartment. Did you go to law school in Florida as well? No. So you know, when I was looking at law schools, I had actually taken an internship, a paid internship during college. I worked for about a year and a half at a place called Capital Collateral Regional Council. Big name, but it uh, was a state agency where lawyers represented people on death row in Florida. And death penalty work is some of the hardest work you can do in this field. It's incredibly emotional work. It's challenging legally. You don't get a lot of wins because it gets harder and harder to appeal a person's case. The the deck is really stacked against you. But it's also where you see examples of the worst lawyering in the field. And unfortunately, people, you know, their lives are on the line. So I really became passionate about death penalty work. And I ended up applying to law schools that had death penalty clinics. And I got into a couple on the East Coast And then I got into Santa Clara Law School out in the Bay Area. My mom still lived in Mill Valley. And even though my husband had come home from prison, you know, unfortunately, our marriage didn't make it. And we were going through a divorce. So I decided, you know, I was going to need a lot of help with my daughter while I was in law school. Um, Law school is a huge task. And I knew I'd probably have to work for at least part of it. And so I decided to move back out to California to the Bay Area where my mom lived so that she could help out with my daughter. And, you know, even though she worked, um, at least she was able to pick her up from school sometimes. And I lived my first year in Santa Clara, right by the school. And I would drive every Friday when we got out of school, I would go pick up my daughter who, who luckily was in the on-campus daycare. And I would drive with her out to Mill Valley, about an hour and a half drive, hang out with my mom for a few hours. And then it was like shut down. Like I was in my own room for the entire weekend, you know, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. I would bring like all the food I was going to eat for the day into the room and just sit there and read and read and read and read through the law books and do all of my homework for the week. Because I knew once I got back down to Santa Clara on Monday morning, you know, I was going to have to balance the classes and my daughter and trying to keep, you know, everything moving. So I don't even know how you did that just because your daughter is so young at this point. And I think any parent can attest to working or not working, children's needs 
are sometimes endless, right? Like they want so much time from you. And thank God that you had your mom so that you were able to focus on your studies for the weekend. But on a practical level, how much time would you say, you know, for anybody who was interested in pursuing becoming a lawyer at this point, how many hours a day are dedicated to studying, do you think? It's a lot. I think I was probably putting in 60 hour weeks when you count all the homework and everything. In class, you know, your first year you go every single day to classes. You have some time between classes, but then I would spend time, you know, refreshing on whatever subject we were going to study next. So it was a lot of time. I think on a practical level, I had a few things working in my favor. We got, I got an apartment that was maybe like two blocks from the law school. My daughter got into the on-campus daycare, both during college and law school, which was huge. Huge. Because, you know, not only was it right there, but it was also subsidized. I think especially during college, you know, I, I nursed her for two and a half years. So it was really nice to have her on campus. I could just come by, see her on my lunch break and uh, hand her back to the teachers, you know, not feel like I was missing too much of that time with her law school, you know, same thing. I would sometimes come by and have lunch with her and we would walk to school in the morning together. I would drop her off at her school. And and then after I was done studying and the library was closing, a lot of the time I'd pick her up, we'd go over to the cafeteria, eat dinner there, and then walk back home. So it was, it was simple in a lot of ways because, you know, our, our main job was, my main job was just studying. It's funny because now my daughter's 16 and sometimes- What? Oh my God. <laughs> and sometimes she'll reference that time. She'll be like, mom, when we were in law school, do you remember? And I'm like, we were never in law school. I was but in law school. Yeah, but also what an incredible example that you set for her too, of just showing, and it seems like you were so singularly focused, knowing that you have to put your time in and you had all these supportive components along the way, but you are a total badass. Like I give you so much props for everything that you did. Well, thank you. I think- Part of the blessing was ignorance too. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be until I was in the thick of it and I'm not one to quit. So, you know, once I was in the middle, I'm like, okay, all right, this is what everybody else was saying. It was going to be really hard, but you just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I was able to also participate in extracurriculars on the side. I I was a a part of the American Constitution Society at, at school, which is a program to get, you know, more progressive judges on the bench. I was the president of that. And I remember getting to bring my daughter to those meetings and and getting to bring her to the student lounge. And she would sit there and help us sell water bottles to fund the program and stuff. So in some ways it was nice because I got to spend more time with her, but it, it just was about like, you know, one foot in front of the other, just get through it. At what point in time did you also find time to become the mayor of Mill Valley? <laughs> like, yeah, I just love the arc of your narrative. You were like, I dropped out of high school and then I decided, you know, like full Aaron Brockovich style, just to go up against the system with a young daughter, go through law school, do the whole thing, and then become the youngest mayor of Mill Valley, which yeah. is where you grew up or? That is where I grew up. Yeah. So towards the end of my first year of law school, one of our neighbors fell asleep with a cigarette and burned Mm -hmm. down the entire apartment complex. And luckily Hannah and I, my daughter and I were not there. We were at my mom's because it was on a This is the apartment complex that you lived in. Yeah. Oh my God. I was very upset, obviously. Was everyone okay? Everybody was fine. Yeah. Okay. It was just property damage. And I 
was able to stay with a family friend for a couple months while I finished my first year of law school. And then my daughter was turning five and about to start kindergarten. So I thought about it and realized, you know, even though it was kind of far away, I wanted to be closer to my mom. And the second and third year of law school, you don't have to go to a class every single day. You can make your schedule. So I knew I could probably make my schedule for like two or three days and just drive down those two or three days, drive back and forth. And then I got an internship working at the San Francisco Public Defenders, which was closer to my mom. So I decided to move back to Mill Valley, California. And when I was looking for places to live, they were like insanely expensive. I think I ended up finding like a 600 square foot apartment for $1,400 a month, which now you couldn't even find. It'd be, you know, twice that. And I, it was really disheartening. A lot of my friends who had thought about moving back after college couldn't. And I remember, you know, asking people, why is there no affordable housing in this town? Like, this is crazy. And somebody was like, well, go talk to the city council about it. And I'm like, well, who's this, you know, who's the city council? Who's on the city council? And I went down. You're like, no, I'm not going to talk to them. I'll just become the mayor. (laughs) So I went down. And then I'll make my own apartment prices. Pretty much. Pretty much. (laughs) So I went down. We should all be way more Jessica Jackson in our lives. Like if there's a problem, we're not going to like ask to talk to the manager. We're going to become the manager. (laughs) Well, you know, it ended up working out. So I decided to run for city council once I realized, you know, it was a whole bunch of folks who were much older and not going through the same kind of struggle I was. Out of touch. Yeah. And and so, you know, some of them are were well-intentioned, but just hadn't hadn't had this kind of experience. And I ended up running and I ran against three much, much older men and all of them had more city experience. I think Somebody said it was very cute that I was running for city council. I bet. I just Did you got, have to campaign? Yeah, we had debates. I had to campaign. Wow. And you talk about, you know, the ability to learn as an adult. I think that actually ended up being one of my biggest years of growth because suddenly, you know, I'd been so singularly focused and pigeonholing myself on criminal justice reform. And suddenly I was learning about like sewage infrastructure and how you protect the town from emergencies and all of this different stuff that I'd never even really thought about, but was really interesting. So I ended up actually winning and I was served on the city council. How cute. (laughs) How cute. (laughs) I served on uh, the city council for six years and and, um, 2016, 2017 served as, as the mayor of the town. Wow. When I became mayor, you know, I jumped right in on affordable housing. We actually created an affordable housing fund, which was based on an impact fee. So if you were building on your house, if you were doing more than a hundred thousand dollar renovation, you had to pay a 1.5% fee that then went into the affordable housing fund because all over town, I saw people taking what would have been affordable housing, ripping it down and building these giant homes. And I think, you know, that made an impact on the character of the community, but it also made, you know, the cost of housing much more expensive. So we were able to create the affordable housing fund and a committee to figure out, you know, exactly how to spend that fund to create as much housing as possible. We also passed an inclusionary zoning rule that said, you know, if you're a developer and you're developing in this town, if you build four units, one of those has to be an affordable unit. So we were able to make some some really big steps on affordable housing, which I was very proud of. And and being mayor really gave me that opportunity. And I highly recommend local service to especially women out there because it was probably 
one of the most fulfilling things that I've done in my career. Even though I've you know gotten to do a lot to let people out of prison and stuff, I think working in your community, investing in your community, you know, helping put your mark on it and really fighting for what's right in your community has such a huge impact on on your daily life. And it's just, it's an incredible opportunity. Yeah. I I mean, I'm shocked by how much you've accomplished. Do you feel that you're able to take the victories of seeing all that you've done on your journey? I know that you said it was sort of an unconventional route that you had taken. Are you pretty like focused in terms of creating goalposts for yourself or it sounds like it's been fairly fluid too? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been fluid. I've been I've been lucky because opportunities have come up, but I definitely, you know, I think about things more further out now. I think when you don't have any sort of, you know, financial resources and when you're younger and just trying to like figure out how to survive, it's a little harder to put thought into long-term planning, but I finally gotten to the point where you know, I can sit down and say, what are my long-term goals? Do I want to go into academe one day? Do I want to go into the private sector at some point and, and be able to build something that would help people doing this kind of work more? What, what, what is it exactly that I want to do? So I've been able to put some more thought into that. And it hits me every once in a while. You know, my, my daughter and I, the other day we were sitting down and I had just gotten paid and we were going to go to the grocery store and we we're making a list. And I'm like, you know what, let's just go. and. We'll just grab whatever it is that you know we want to get. And I had to stop and, and think to myself, and I actually said to her, I was like, it's really crazy that just 16 years ago, we were on food stamps and I had to write out exactly what it is that we would have for the whole week and like ration the spaghetti. Like, no, you can't have that much spaghetti because you know we have to make it last a week. And now it's like, we can go to the grocery store and fill up the cart. And if it's a couple hundred dollars, like I can cover it. I think it's a really good feeling. And it's amazing to look back and and realize how lucky I am to have been able to make it so far because I know a lot of people who are put into that position aren't. You are such a beacon for people though, too, of also just putting in the work and (laughs) we're both crying right now. I know. Well, also your daughter was... You know, she did go to law school with you. So I'm sure she probably (laughs) remembered all that stuff too. But it's also just to see how far that you've come, you know, and sometimes, especially when you're working so hard and you're so in the mire of all of it and you don't really see those big moments and just having a task as simple as going to the grocery store, but realizing how heavy that was for you before and not knowing if you would be able to provide food for your child and you worked your way out of of that and had the opportunity to do so and are now fighting for so many people who aren't given those chances. Yeah. Tell me about then how did Cut 50 come to pass? When I graduated from law school, I went to work for the Habeas Corpus Resource Center, also a long name and, and fancy way of saying death penalty. All of it. <laughs> And it flows off your tongue. It really does. You're like, then I was a member, uh, you know, the youngest member of the constitutional group. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Well, thank you. So yeah, I went to work at Habeas Corpus Resource Center and I was representing men and women on death row in California. And I love the work. It's amazing. It's hard work. You know, your clients' lives depend on you, but after about four years of doing that, I, I actually met Van Jones, who was on CNN at the time. He was just a CNN commentator, and he mm-hmm. had a show 
with Newt Gingrich that was called Crossfire. And they would, you know, literally talk about all the issues that were going on in today's world. And they would just fight, 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 fight. Like the whole show was just them fighting about things like Republican and Democratic views. And Van and I had started talking about, you know, criminal justice reform. He had worked on it earlier on in his career. And he and I really felt strongly in another friend of mine from law school, Matt Haney, that we wanted to do something bigger on criminal justice reform. We wanted to do mass campaign. And by the way, uh, meeting Van, you know, it had been about eight years since my husband had gone to prison. And because of how much stigma there is around incarceration, you know, I normally didn't tell people about my husband going to prison. In fact, while he was in prison, I didn't even tell a lot of my friends that he was there. They would say, where's your husband? And I would say, yeah, he's working in Georgia. I just wouldn't say he's working for the Department of Corrections as, you know, an incarcerated. Right. Right. Deep details. Yeah, big detail. So, you know, I I really had kept it to myself. And Van was one of the first people that I really kind of opened up to and, and told. And I think more because he had done that work and I was hoping he would get back into it. So when he got on the show with Newt on Crossfire, he actually started talking to Newt. They kind of built a friendship. And in one break, Newt asked him what, what he was working on. And, and Van said, you know, I, I've met these two young Bay Area lawyers who are really trying to get me to work on criminal justice reform policy. And Newt said, you should. You know, you guys have done a terrible job on criminal justice reform. It's such a small tent. You don't even have room for people like me who agree with you. And Van's like, what? We agree? Wow. <laughs> like, this guy helped pass, you know, the 94 crime bill. How do, how do we agree on this? And Newt said, yeah, you know, this is from a fiscal perspective. This is a colossal waste of taxpayer resources on terrible right. outcomes. From an evangelical perspective, I believe in second chances and, and redemption and, and, you know, people getting, getting a chance to rehabilitate themselves. And from a libertarian perspective, this is a big bloated government system, which we don't like. And so Van was like, uh, Jessica, you should get on a plane and come meet Newt Gingrich. <laughs> so, of course, I, I kind of thought... An he was unlikely ally. A very unlikely ally. So I, I totally thought he was crazy. And I got on the plane. I came out to D.C. And, you know, it just so happened that night they had a guest on their show. And it was Rick Perry, governor of Texas. Mm-hmm who had presided over like hundreds of executions, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm walking in there giving him the side eye and I'm talking to Newt and I'm talking to Van and we're talking about, you know, doing a bipartisan campaign to end mass incarceration. And suddenly Governor Perry comes over and he's, he's listening to us and he's like, yeah, I've closed, you know, a couple of prisons in Texas and I've dropped the prison population by 20%. And I'm like, you have? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we shouldn't have all of these drug offenders in inside of the prisons. They should be getting treatment. And I'm like, okay, this is crazy. That must have felt incredible for you too. Also validating everything that you were working towards and also talking about the stigma that you felt and even acknowledging that your husband was part of that system, right? For all the, all the years that you were working to be able to defend against it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just even hearing that gave me hope. So Matt Haney and I both left our jobs. He was the director of the UC Students Administration at the time. And I left my job at HCRC and came over 
to work with Van and, and we co-founded Cut 50. And I actually was pregnant with my second daughter at the time. Because um, <laughs> you like to raise the stakes of literally doing it all. And it was a very, uh, it was a very difficult pregnancy too. I had hyperemesis. So I was literally throwing up like every five minutes. And when Van and Matt wanted to do our first like meeting for Cut 50, I'm like, okay, but you have to come to my house because I have a full-time IV in my arm. And they're like, oh, what no. is going on? Um, so it was kind of crazy in the beginning, but Scarlett, my second came and, you know, was healthy and everything. And in the meantime, you know, literally on the day of her birth was our first ever event. And I couldn't come to DC to be a part of it. So I was like kicking myself. So I listened in on speakerphone with Newt and Van and Cory Booker. Wow. You know, doing this big sort of town hall up on Capitol Hill. And I'm listening in and then he calls me back after and he's like, all right, like, let's talk next steps. And I'm like, let me call you back because I'm in labor. <laughs> so I, uh, Scarlett actually came on what is Cut 50's birthday. She was nice enough to wait till 5.30 p.m. You birthed two things on the same day. Yeah. And, and then six weeks later, we hosted our bipartisan summit on criminal justice reform and introduced our first piece of federal legislation on it, which you know went on many years later and many versions later to become the First Step Act, which was signed into law. December 2018 by President Trump and has let 14,000 people out of federal prison so far. Wow. Okay, so Jessica, tell me about Kim Kardashian. For anyone who doesn't know, Jessica has been referred to as Kim's mentor as she pursues her own legal career. How did you two link up? So I actually met Kim because she was working on the case of Alice Johnson with my friend Brittany Barnett, who had worked at Cut 50 on our clemency campaign. And unfortunately, Alice Johnson had been denied clemency three times under President Obama. And that's because the process back then was very, very complicated. And um, there were some people in the Department of Justice that unfortunately interfered and, and were able to prevent her release. But and Alice Johnson was a was a grandmother, right? Who was a yeah. first time offender for was it a possession thing or she was selling marijuana or what was the yeah? So interestingly, so Alice, unfortunately, she had been through a lot of trauma and had had a tragic loss of her child, and she ended up getting involved in a drug selling scheme. So Alice's job was essentially you know, somebody would call who wanted to pick up drugs and then she would tell them where to go and who to call to get those drugs. So she was a telephone mule is what they would call it. So she was just answering calls. And she was doing this obviously for purely financial reasons. Yeah. And she did the money. So, you know, I think she recognizes today that it was a terrible decision. Unfortunately, you know, she received a life sentence, which is not really a life sentence. She received the sentence of dying in prison because of her decision to play a part in, in a drug selling scheme, which is just heartbreaking, you know? And the systemic components of this too, because you look at all of these kids who do these mass shootings and sexual assault and other much more horrible crimes who receive literally a portion of that, right? In terms of a sentence. Yeah, who receive much less of a sentence or some who receive- Or nothing. Yeah, exactly. So 
Alice, you know, had had done a phenomenal job inside despite all of this. Uh, she was just a leader and a mentor to other women inside, had really rehabilitated herself, taken accountability. And she was, when Cut 50 was working on clemencies, you know, we were trying to create a lot of, of pressure on the last administration to do clemencies before Obama left office. And Alice was able, because of her standing inside the prison, to actually Skype into one of our events, which is just incredible. But we had a lot of reporters there. And one of those reporters later on went on to write this article for Mike.com about her and also do a telephone Skype interview. And Kim Kardashian happened to be, you know, on social media and scrolling through her Twitter one day and saw Miss Alice's face. And she was just so moved by her story and by, I think, just even the look in, in Alice's eye. And it sounds funny, but I've gotten to know Kim over the last, you know, two and a half years. And she really, she really just has this way of connecting with people and connecting with their stories. And I see her reading their letters and something in her just sparks when she comes across a story like like Miss Alice's or, or any of the other ones she's worked on, and she just is so moved to work on them. So she was working on that clemency. I was working with the administration, you know, because of our ties to Newt and because we'd been working on bipartisan legislation for years. Jared Kushner reached out to Van, and I had been working alongside them on, on the First Step Act. And you know, I remember Brittany saying, Kim is working on Alice's case and I want you to meet her and, and get to know her. And uh, Jared was saying the same thing. He had heard about Alice's case. And so Kim and I got on the phone and we talked and we really hit it off. And then I went down to LA probably a couple months later and we started talking about she wanted to become a lawyer. And we started looking at like, how can you become a lawyer in California? I knew about the apprenticeship program that allows you to become a lawyer without going to a law school, because I'm sure, as you can imagine, for Kim to go to law school, it would just be, it would be bonkers. She can't even go to Starbucks, let alone going to a law school. There, there would be media everywhere. And the program that she's doing, this apprenticeship program, is much, much harder than law school, which I think people are surprised to hear. But she's she's been working on the program for about a year and a half now. I give her tremendous props too, because a, a little bit like what we said earlier, I just love that Kim has exceeded, I would imagine, so many of her life's expectations already. Instead of just sort of resting on that, is actually called to a higher purpose. Also, the awareness that she's brought to a lot of these cases just based on the power of her platform. She has been a game changer, right? You think back to it 15 years ago, I was too embarrassed to tell people, my friends, that my husband was in prison. Now you've got both parties running on who's going to let more people out of prison, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. You've got Super Bowl ads about a woman getting out of prison. You've got Kim, you know, featuring it on Keeping Up with the Kardashians, the most watched reality show. You know, you've got the biggest platform in the world, which is Kim's, you know, social media talking about it. You've got probably millions of people who never would have thought twice about this issue or only would have had negative perceptions of it. But because Kim has spoken up on this and, and other influencers, you know, now they're excited about it. She she basically made criminal justice reform sexy. Well, she can kind of make anything sexy, you know, <laughs> that's true. But on a serious note, for people who are interested, how would you suggest they get involved, Jessica? 
Yeah, I mean, they can follow Reform Alliance on Instagram or on Twitter. They can go to reformalliance.com and sign up to receive updates and to become a reformer to help join us in the fight. We're actually going to be working on some federal bills this year. So that's very exciting. And there'll be a lot of ways for people to get plugged in. The whole kind of idea of the podcast is really talking about the societal notion of having it all. Is that something that you believe in? Do you think that there's such a thing as having it all? And if so, what would that look like to you today? I think you can have it all, but not at one time. So you're going to have your days where you're a great mom, right? And then there's the days where, you know, my kids are eating pizza and watching TV while I work. So it's really as long as you can be flexible. You know, I was able to bring both my kids along for a lot of my journey. I I was able to work nights and spend time with them in the evenings. I was able to bring them on trips. I mean, when we were working on the First Step Act, uh, I made 32 trips from the West Coast to the East Coast to work on the bill, Scarlett came with me on 24 of those trips, right? Wow. So you have to really be flexible and you have to be resilient. And I think you just have to figure out your priorities and, and really fight for them. So yeah, I think you can have it all, but you know, just not all at one time. Well, I love how much you're fighting for everything that you believe in. Okay. Last couple of questions. These are much less important than the work <laughs> that you're doing, but We have a segment called The Riff, and it could be a practice or a product or a service that you use in some way that makes your life easier. So is there anything that fits the bill for you? I mean, obviously, you know, I I use Instacart, which helps because then I can kind of set deliveries on things. I don't have to go to the grocery store. I know I'm not going to run out of like milk, bread, eggs, cheese, like the basic things. I think that's really helpful. The other thing that I did two years ago, I was lucky enough to have an income where we could actually get no pair. And I think that has been a huge, huge game changer for me. And does she live with you? She lives with us. So you have to have a room that you can provide them. Is this legal? I'm talking yes. to a lawyer because I know somebody else who literally was like, yeah, we have a Swedish au pair. My husband was like, let's get a Swedish au pair. They're like Swedish teenagers who live in your house. And I'm like, I think this cannot be okay for the labor no, laws. And also to have such like attractive Swedish teens running around the world, living in people's homes. That's <laughs> well, going to be something we're going to have to look into after criminal justice reform, you know? <laughs> Ours is not Swedish, which would have been great because I'm half Swedish and I actually wanted somebody who was Swedish, but we have a Brazilian au pair right now. Oh God. Okay. So not, not a hot Swede, but a hot Brazilian. (laughs) Who my children love and who I love dearly. You know, it's kind of like having another daughter around. I have a very inclusive policy. She's very much a part of the family. You know, we go on trips, but huge plug to having an au pair. I think they really enjoy getting to see the country. It's so great to have kind of one more set of hands to, to love on the kids. And it's, you know, more affordable for us than daycare was. So that's been really, really helpful. Okay. So, and other lies, are there any occasion on which you think it's okay to lie? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing is everybody always asks me when I'll talk about a case, they're like, well, did so-and-so do it? And I'm like, that's not the Not the point. Right. But that's what's crazy. That is a wild part of being an attorney though, right? Is that we really bifurcate things, right and wrong, black and white. And ultimately your job as an attorney sometime is not whether or not that person actually did 
the thing. It's about the legal loopholes, the policy, the laws, et cetera, right? And whether or not they should be punished for that thing. Right. And I think in addition to that, for me in my field, like I work on legislation, I have to have trust. I have to be able to trust legislators. They have to be able to trust me in politics. You know, you really, it really is just based on your reputation and your word. And I don't ever want to jeopardize that. So I work very closely with the Trump administration on stuff. I'm going to work closely with the next administration, work closely with the administration before that on criminal justice stuff. You know, I have to work with people on both sides of the aisle. So I never want to betray the trust. And I think a big part of that is being honest and telling people where I stand and, you know, what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do and and not really trying to hide that. So in terms of, is it ever okay to lie? Omissions probably never killed anybody, but I don't think lying really works in this field. And what about, we discussed the idea of having it all, but what have you had enough of? I could always use more time with my kids. I could always use more time to work. There's hundreds of messages I get every week from people inside prison. I wish I could take every single one of their cases. I wish I could help every single one of them. There's so much out there that I wish I could do. So I don't think you ever get enough of everything, but I'm grateful for what I get because I've been on the other other side and I've, I've seen what that looks like. And I really love the life I've built and I feel grateful to have been able to do so. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. You are honestly such an inspiration. You make me want to be a better person and work harder and join the city council and move to Washington (laughs) and do it all. And you are such an inspiration for people who feel helpless sometimes and that where they, you know, they don't know where to start to get involved. And it's just like, look to people like you who step by step are making huge, huge changes. And I applaud everything that you're doing. And I appreciate you sharing your story. For anyone who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? Jessica Jackson on Instagram, Jessica Jackson on Twitter. If you follow me, I I promise lots of entertaining stories about my five-year-old who uh, is definitely following in my rebellious footsteps, but also regular updates about the work that we're doing and the bills that we're working on. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys, so please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Having It All and Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.